Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There's going to be a link to a two-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10, and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 19 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Thanks as always for tuning in. This is the only podcast that focuses exclusively on investing for passive income. We cover everything from real estate investment trusts to income funds to bonds to peer-to-peer lending and anything else in between. The focus is on the US and Canada, but I'm obviously grateful for everyone who joins us. Listeners of the Income Investing Podcast concentrate on revenue-producing assets for a few reasons. First, their dividends can supplement your current income, and if you get to a point where your investment income is higher than your expenses, then you are considered to be financially free. Second, many of these investments can also appreciate in value so they can pay income on a monthly or quarterly basis and create profits via a capital gain. Third, there are a lot of options to choose from, so you can diversify across markets and industries while still maintaining the consistency of earning cash flow. And fourth, a lot of these investments can be made with just a few hundred dollars, so people in nearly all financial situations can employ this strategy of building wealth. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list of why we like income investing. One of my personal favorites is that I find it to be easier than trying to guess which investments might go up or might go down in price. There's a degree of stability that I have not been able to get with other investing methods. So today we're going to continue to examine mortgage lending as an income-producing investment. We are approaching the tail end of the segment, which we began way back in episode number 10. Soon we're going to start looking at mortgage-based products like syndications and investment funds and mortgage investment corporations and MREITs, so I wanted to make sure that you've got a solid foundation before we get into any of those. We'll begin today's show by answering a question from one of our listeners. If you have something that you'd like me to discuss, you can always let me know at alexazasadi.net slash podcast. Just scroll down towards the bottom of the page and you'll see a box where you can type in your question. This one comes from Logan, who lives in Toronto. Logan had heard that you're able to make direct mortgage investments by using funds within your RSP account. So he wanted to know whether this is in fact the case and asked me to shed some light on it. For clarity, RSP stands for Registered Retirement Savings Plan, 
It's a Canadian program that encourages people to save money and invest by providing tax advantages. It's similar to a Roth IRA in the U.S. Many Canadians know that they can borrow money from their own RSPs to make a down payment for their house, but this is not what Logan's referring to. What he's saying is that you can lend money to someone else and secure it with a mortgage using funds from within your own RSP. And when you pull money out of your account to do so, it does not trigger a withdrawal penalty. Logan, yes, you can do this. It's called an arm's length mortgage. You can lend money and collateralize it with a first, second, or third mortgage, as long as the borrower is not related to you. Basically, you open up a self-directed account with a trust company like Olympia Trust or Canadian Western Trust or B2B Trust. You then transfer over to them whatever you want to invest from within your existing RSP. For example, let's say you have $100,000 in mutual funds that are held in an RSP with Scotiabank and you want to invest half of it into a mortgage. You tell your trustee to transfer them to your new RSP account, which can take a few days or a few weeks depending on what you own. And once the money's in that account, you then work with the trustee to fund the mortgage. It is a legitimate investment. Now, most of the time, these types of deals are set up by mortgage brokers and promoters. They usually have the process streamlined with paperwork and a lawyer and a borrower ready to go. So it's probably easier to work with them than to do it yourself, especially if you've never done it before. Obviously, nothing is done for free, They take their fees out of it, often from the origination fee, and there are going to be costs to open up and maintain the account with the trust company. Now, I've never done this myself. I know of a few people who do put these deals together, but I don't know anything about whether they're successful or how their clients have done. But if you want me to give you a couple of names, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and let me know. I don't get any sort of referral fee or any kind of compensation out of it. However, one business that I do make money from is called Pacific Income. I am its CEO. So before I get to the rest of this episode, just bear with me for 30 seconds and let me promote it to you. I promise it'll be super duper interesting. Pacific Income is a Vancouver-based lender that considers deals across the US and Canada. We provide funding to entrepreneurs, small business owners, and real estate investors who need capital to grow. We lend up to a quarter million dollars and have no problem working with those who aren't favored by banks. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in episode 17, banks have a very specific sort of customer and it's quite common for entrepreneurs to be outside of their box. So get the capital you need to build your empire. You can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. Okay, so let's take a moment to recap what we've talked about so far. We have covered a ton of information in the last couple of months, so we're going to switch it up a little bit this time and do it in a numbered format. Here are the main takeaways thus far. Number one, a mortgage is a legal instrument that is used to secure a debt against real estate. It's not a loan in and of itself. A loan is usually evidenced by signing a loan agreement or a promissory note, which is then secured to the real estate by the mortgage. Number two, a mortgage can prevent the property from being sold without first repaying the debt. So let's say there's a $100,000 house with a $70,000 mortgage on it. If it's sold, the first $70,000 will be paid to the creditor, and the seller can keep whatever else remains, which in this case would be $30,000. Number three, 
a mortgage can also allow the lender to foreclose on or take possession of the real estate if the borrower defaults on its obligations. Number four, one of the most important concepts to know is the loan-to-value ratio, or LTV. This describes how much debt there is on the property when compared to its value. So let's take the earlier example, where we have a $100,000 house with a $70,000 mortgage on it. The LTV is 70%, because 70% of the real estate is encumbered by debt. If the LTV is greater than 100%, then that means that the property is worth less than what is owed to the creditor. That's also called being underwater. Number five, if there's more than one debt that's registered on the property, then those debts must be repaid in chronological order once the property is sold. The first mortgage gets paid first, the second mortgage gets paid second, and the third mortgage gets paid third, and so on and so forth. Number six, mortgages can make money for lenders in a few different ways. The most common one is by charging interest and fees and late payment penalties. As well, the borrower should have to reimburse the lender for all of its expenses, including its legal fees. Number seven, like anything else, mortgage loans can be awful investments if the lender is careless. There are all sorts of risks, including origination risk and default risk and liquidity risk. But thankfully, there are also lots of tools that we can use to mitigate those hazards. Number eight, loan agreements and promissory notes can be sold off to other investors. As such, they can fluctuate in value. It is possible to earn a capital gain if you sell it for a higher price. For example, you might sell that $70,000 mortgage note for $75,000. This is all done on the debt market, where anything from bonds to consumer financing agreements are traded, and this gives mortgage lenders a degree of liquidity. Number nine, all loans are impacted by the policies of central banks, like the United States Fed and the Bank of Canada. They can influence the interest rate that regular banks have to pay whenever they borrow money. That triggers a chain reaction, which is then felt throughout the economy. Their decisions can also cause loans to rise or fall in value. Number 10, there's a large market for private, non-bank loans. This is where a lot of real estate developers, for example, get financing for their projects. It's not just a place for desperate people and desperate businesses to borrow. And finally, number 11, A lot of entrepreneurs and business owners will choose to borrow money instead of to raise equity from outside investors. They might do this for a few different reasons. In many cases, it makes more financial sense to take out a loan instead of to give up shares in your company. In today's episode, we're going to look at adding extra non-real estate collateral to a loan. So in addition to registering a mortgage, How can a lender get more security? For example, what happens if a property isn't worth enough to pay back the lender? How can the lender cast a wide net over as many assets as possible to help ensure repayment? I want to preface the rest of this show by saying that investors always have to look at the worst case scenario. We have to think about every possible risk and then try to manage them. Declining property prices are just the beginning of it. We've got to include everything from bankruptcy to fraud to fires, flooding, earthquakes, tornadoes, death, and widespread destruction. We have to cover all of our bases. Of course, the chances of all this happening to one of our investments are slim. But if they do occur, we have to be prepared. 
and unfortunately, that can mean having some pretty grim discussions. I don't like talking about foreclosures and lawsuits, and like I mentioned before, I've never even come close to foreclosing on someone. But we as investors have to take a clear-eyed perspective. Sometimes things just go wrong, and that's the reality of business. So today we're going to have some of those conversations from the context of mortgage lending. What if we have to foreclose and the LTV is too high to get our capital back? What happens if a borrower goes bankrupt? What happens if the borrower dies while he still owes us money? How can we protect our capital in those circumstances? And is a mortgage always enough to do that? To begin, I want to make sure that we're on the same page with a legal concept. You might remember a famous line from the former governor of Massachusetts and presidential candidate Mitt Romney. At the Iowa State Fair in 2011, after facing heated questions about his tax policies while running for the presidency, he pronounced that corporations are people, my friend. While Governor Romney took flack for that statement and was widely seen as an out-of-touch elitist, he was basically right. Under the law, corporations are their own separate entities. They can do a lot of the things that people can do. They can borrow money. They can have credit histories. They can have credit cards. They can be fined, and they can be criminally charged. And they can do a lot of this without impacting their shareholders, their directors, their officers, or their employees. This is really important for lenders to understand, so let's look at an example. Geneva gives an unsecured loan, so a loan with no mortgage, to ABC Construction Corporation, a business with five employees that's owned by a man named Scott. She listened to episode 13 of Income Investing and made sure that the company was in a strong financial position before giving the loan. The company's income was high, its debts were low, and its prospects were all positive. But a year after receiving the loan, the economy dips. ABC Construction Corporation then runs into financial disaster, and it eventually closes down. As a result, it stops making payments to Geneva. To recoup her funds, she files a lawsuit against both ABC Construction Corporation and Scott. She knows that he owns a large house that she could probably register a lien against. After going to court, the judge finds the company liable for the debt and orders it to pay it back. But he dismisses the case against Scott because Scott was not the borrower. The loan agreement was between Geneva and ABC Construction Corporation. However, the company has no assets left and simply can't repay the debt. Geneva's lawyer then demands to see the business's bank accounts and records. After getting them, he looks for evidence of fraud and wrongdoing or any attempts by Scott to transfer assets out of ABC Construction Corporation. The lawyer even checks to see if the company complied with securities legislation when signing a promissory note for the loan, but he can't find anything that might pin the debt to Scott personally. Unfortunately for Geneva, it is impossible for her to recover the loan. On its face, this may seem unfair, but corporations can provide a legitimate veil to protect people from their businesses. They were established to allow entrepreneurs to take risks without threatening their entire livelihoods. They can compartmentalize their company from their personhood. In this case, a corporation prevented Scott from losing his home despite the failure of his business venture. As such, his wife and children who live in that house won't be impacted by the collapse of ABC Construction Corporation, at least not to the extent of being kicked out of their own home. 
As you already know, businesses comprise a crucial part of our societal fabric. They form economies, they employ people, and they're responsible for a lot of the innovation and technology that we currently have. Everything from food and health services to internet to computers, cars and phones are either invented, improved upon, made, or distributed by companies. If entrepreneurs were afraid to take risks because they could lose everything, then much of what we have today might not exist. The protection provided by corporations is necessary in a world that's so deeply influenced by business. Since corporations add a layer of defense, lenders need to respond with extra due diligence. If you are lending money to a company, in most cases, the human beings that own or manage that company will not be responsible for the debt. That includes entities that have suffixes like Inc., LTD, or LLC. Now, it is possible to get around the corporate veil. Geneva could have done so by making Scott liable for the debt, too. The easiest way would have probably been to lend the money to Scott personally, instead of to ABC Construction Corporation. He would presumably put the money into his company and would rely on the business to pay it back. But regardless of the company's performance, Scott would still be the borrower, and if he defaulted on his obligations, Geneva could then collect from all of his assets, and that includes ABC Construction Corporation. Even though the business is a separate legal entity, Scott owns it, and therefore Geneva could go after the shares in the business in the event of a default. The corporate veil only protects the owners from the business's liabilities. It does not insulate the business from the owner's liabilities. Geneva could sue Scott and even take possession of his shares in ABC Construction Corporation, thus becoming its new owner. It wouldn't have helped in this case because the company is defunct, but I'm just trying to make the point that corporations offer protection in one direction, not two. You can't just throw your assets into a corporation and then suddenly become creditor-proof. You still own them, whether it's directly or through shares in a company. Now, if Scott didn't want to borrow the money personally, Geneva's next option would be to have him guarantee the loan. ABC Construction Corporation would execute the promissory note, but Scott would sign a separate document called a personal guarantee. This would mean that he would be personally liable for the business's debts. Once the company defaulted on the loan, all of Scott's assets, including his house, would then be exposed to risk. Using a personal guarantee is therefore one way to add additional collateral. They are very common when lending to a corporation or another business entity. Now, personal guarantees are not just used to bypass the corporate shield. They can also tie other people into the debt. For example, Geneva could have requested that Scott's wife also signs a personal guarantee. It would be effectively the same thing as co-signing for the loan. It would allow Geneva to collect from Scott's wife's assets and not just his. For example, let's say that Scott personally guaranteed the loan to ABC Construction Corporation, but his wife did not. Geneva wins the lawsuit and the judge orders both the business and Scott personally to repay the debt. Geneva then attempts to register the judgment as a lien against Scott's house. However, the court refuses it because the house is owned by Scott and his wife together. The court rules that a lien would hurt Scott's wife, which would be unfair because she had nothing to do with the loan. It was a deal between Geneva, ABC Construction Corporation, and Scott. So why should his wife suffer the consequences for that? 
Geneva would have had more success if the wife guaranteed the loan, because then she'd be on the hook for it too. Another instrument that lenders can use to add more collateral is called a General Security Agreement, or a GSA. This is a document that gives creditors a registered position on all of a company's assets. It's sort of like a mortgage, except that it's not on real estate. For instance, if ABC Construction Corporation had assets like equipment and machinery, a GSA would give the lender a specific claim on them. Now, regardless, Geneva could have taken possession of the equipment and tried to sell it. She already has a judgment. But what if there were multiple creditors competing for the same assets? A GSA would be useful in that scenario because it would identify Geneva as the first registered creditor. She would get the first claim. Now, several years ago, I gave a loan to an entrepreneur who passed away after an accident. Although I could have, out of compassion to her family, I chose not to collect the balance from her estate. It was my personal money and it just didn't feel right. If it was a loan made by Pacific Income, which has investors, I wouldn't have had a choice. We would probably have had to sue. Although that was the only time such an unfortunate event occurred in my business career, I learned from it. And today, whenever I make a loan that is not backed up by a mortgage, I will usually require the borrower to take out a life insurance policy in my favor. The amount of the policy will be the principal amount, plus origination fees, plus all of the interest that could have accrued. As such, I could collect from the insurance company if the estate isn't able to pay. This is not technically a way of adding collateral, but it does serve the same purpose. In fact, getting a life insurance policy is still a good idea, even if you have a mortgage. If the borrower passes away while she's still in debt to you, then the secured property could get tied up in court during the probate period. Insurance will give you another avenue for repayment, just in case things get messy. The point that I'm trying to make in this episode is that a mortgage is not always enough to protect your capital. It does not mean that you will quickly, easily, or certainly recoup your funds. So using personal guarantees and general security agreements and insurance policies can give you a broader scope of assets to collect from. Now, you do not have to become a legal expert. I'm certainly not one. But you need to be able to identify where you might be exposed to risk. Once you find those potential pitfalls, your lawyer can then mitigate them. Remember, the borrower should have to pay for your legal expenses, so there's really no reason to not have one. So here are some questions that you can ask before giving a loan. Number one, what legal entity is borrowing money from me? Is it a person or is it a business? And if it's a business, what type? Number two, what would happen if the borrower goes bankrupt, gets divorced, or dies? Could the property get tied up in court? And if so, how can I protect myself from that? Number three, what would happen to my mortgage if the property burned down or got flooded or otherwise damaged? Number four, are there other assets that I could collect from if there's not enough equity in the property to pay me back? And number five, are there other people or other companies that would be willing to be liable for the debt too? So let's go back to our example of Geneva and ABC Construction Corporation. How can we make her loan safer? Well, first, Geneva could make the loan to ABC Construction Corporation. But second, the company would execute a general security agreement, giving Geneva the first claim on all of its assets. Third, Scott and his wife could both personally guarantee the loan. 
Fourth, with their permission, Geneva could register a second mortgage on their personal residency. And fifth, she could get one or both of them to take a life insurance policy with her as the sole beneficiary. Now, lenders will go to varying degrees to secure their loans. It depends on the risk of the deal and what can be negotiated. You don't need to use all of these tools, but you should know that they are available to you. So that's it for today's episode. Next week, I'm going to talk about how you can fund a mortgage by yourself. If you're intrigued by the prospect of earning interest from real estate lending, I'm going to walk you through some of the most important steps. It's basically going to be like a checklist. Until then, please go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and check out my online course called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. I hope you have a good week and I'll talk to you next Wednesday.